Hi, this is Dr. Bruce Cromwell again, and I want to continue the conversation we started last week on how we need to be people who make decisions based on principles and not consequences. We, we talked about how there's been this shift in society away from making decisions because something was right or something was wrong to making a decision on whether or not we felt we could get away with it. When I pastored a small church in Southern Illinois, I remember talking to several of the younger kids that live nearby. My wife told me she was sharing in a Sunday school class or a midweek group or some activity with them all about doing their homework. And she asked them, is it okay to cheat on your work at school? And I bet you know what their answer was. Well, if you can get away with it, a life based on consequences. If you don't get caught, it's okay as opposed to a life based on principles, anchored in that truth, that cheating is wrong, that you should be honest. We've seen this shift in society to pleasure, pleasure for the individual, pleasure for the community. There's been this shift from absolute morality to, to relative morality. One of my early churches I pastored also was in Hannibal, Missouri. It's a couple hours north of St. Louis. And I had a bit of a culture shock when I moved there, right after I got married, I had two churches, Hannibal and Ashburn, this little town right on the river. And when I was there, uh, we would have different church potlucks. They'd have meals, things like that. It's common in any church. And I remember one of the people telling me, nothing better than boiled squirrel, preacher. You just pull right off the bone. I remember thinking that squirrel was something you avoided hitting when you were driving down the road. But for them, it was a delicacy. The culture was different. In fact, my predecessor, who is still in the church, had moved from northern Indiana and become a missionary in Japan. He told me at one point he had a greater culture shock moving from northern Indiana to Hannibal than he had northern Indiana to Japan. Culture changes depending on where we are. Or consider that if we lived in some places on earth right now, and we had an aged relative who was getting a little feeble, a little decrepit, we might kill them and then eat them to send them on to the next life hale and hearty. Here in the United States, if we have an aged relative who's getting a little feeble, a little decrepit, well, we ship them off to the nursing home and we might come visit them once a year if they're lucky. Morality and how we deal with people is relative. It changes from culture to culture, place to place. It varies from time to time and person to person. There's this sense that you do your thing and I'll do my thing, and as long as we don't interfere with each other, we're all going to be okay. The problem with that as a system of morals, as something that we would anchor ourselves in, is if each one of us does whatever we feel is right in our own eyes, society will fall apart. We can't all just decide which rules to follow, which rules to enforce, which things are good, which things are bad. There has to be some structure. So we're told instead that we have to learn to live together. And we live together by the great virtue of our time of tolerance. Tolerance is now the big moral virtue. I'll tolerate you if you tolerate me. But you know, there's some problems with this view, with relativism that has led to tolerance. First of these is semantic. If I say to you that everything is relative, am I making an absolute statement or a relative statement? Because if it's absolutely true that absolutely everything is relative, then it's true that there is one absolute. It's that everything is relative. But if it's only relatively true that absolutely everything is relative, then it's only true for some people in some places at some times. And some people will say that that's just playing with words and you would be absolutely 
right, because it's also demonstrating that there are some thoughts that are so flawed, so faulty, that when you just scratch the surface and try to talk about them, you realize they're nonsensical. It falls apart by very definition. And this is true of relativism. There's another reason that relativism, I believe, is flawed also. It's not true because if you look across moral systems, if you look across legal systems around the world today, around socioeconomic systems, across moral codes, there's this endless variation of sociological situations where there's different rules about how people act, but there's this common code of morality. Thomas Aquinas elaborated on a bit by what he called the natural law, this, this common code that we sense somehow about virtue and with our reason know how to live. And what's interesting is every moral culture seems to say something about parent and child relationships, how they are ordered. Every moral culture will talk a little bit about truth telling in society. We'll talk about sexual ordering in society. Every moral culture around the world will talk about the value or the sanctity of life, what they, what they feel about that. They will talk about what is mine and what is ours or what is not mine and what is not ours across these endless variations of cultures and languages and customs around our world today. The beautiful diversity that exists, there is this common code of morality. And what's really, really interesting is if you look at them, you will find five out of the 10 commandments, at least. God's laws for every society in every situation, not just the Jewish people at a particular time and place. So the problem with relativism is it can't be stated as true. There are certain things that everyone holds. It's not true the facts. And relativism, well, it cheats. It cheats because it moves from a description, this is the way the world is, to a prescription. Therefore, you must be tolerant. At all times and at all places, you absolutely have to tolerate things. This subtle shift from a description to a prescription, it's another kind of contradiction. So as you're watching this, I'm sure many of you are very tolerant people. And let's say that after you get done watching this, you're heading to one of your classes, you walk out of your dorm, out of your home, you're heading up to, to science hall or to the library or someplace, and someone walks up to you while you're crossing the parking lot, grabs you by the shirt, stares into your eyes, and says, have you seen any tolerant people lately? Gather your composure and here you are ready to tell them it's their lucky day because, I mean, you are tolerance personified. But then they pull out this knife and they say, because if there's one thing I can't stand, it's tolerance people. When I meet one, I'm just going to stick a knife in them. At this point, as a tolerant human being, confronted by somebody who sticks knives in tolerant human beings, do you tolerate intolerance? I mean, that, that's the fundamental problem for a morality of tolerance. To what extent do you tolerate intolerance, particularly intolerance of tolerance? Again, it can give yourself mental gymnastics trying to figure it out. This shift in society, away from principles to consequences, all of these consequential sorts of ways of thinking. And again, there's other things you should know about consequences. Many of you know President Favera. I've known President Lenny for many years. I consider him a friend. He is a good man. He is a good leader. We are blessed at Central Christian College of Kansas to have him as our president. But you know, I've been here a couple of years now. I have a PhD also. I've been involved in higher education. The other day, President Lenny and I were, were standing out here on, 
on Main Street. We were just kind of watching the traffic go by. We were going to cross over to Heartbeat Coffee and get something to drink. And I had this urge come over me. You know, I could be president of the college too. I could do this job. You know, and there's part of me that thought I could do this better than money. And as I was thinking that, you know, this desire to be the president, it kind of overwhelmed me. And about that time, a UPS truck was driving south on Maine and this passion to be the president just became too much. And I just kind of, you know, elbowed President Lenny out in front of the UPS truck. Well, that moment, Providence intervened and the UPS driver had a mild heart attack. It was mild because it was Providence and Providence is a theological thing. That's a theological joke. But anyway, he had a mild heart attack. He swerved and instead of hitting Lenny out laying out there in the road, jumped the curb and hit me. The funeral oration would be marvelous, wouldn't it? I mean, what was it you would see if you were watching this? Here is this, this brave, young, handsome, smart uh, superintendent of the Great Plains and the Mid-America Conferences of the Free Methodist Church. Here he is saving the life of President Favar by pushing him out of the way of that speeding UPS truck. But what's the problem? That is not at all what I intended. That is not at all what I had hoped to have happen. And growing up watching Law and Order, which I love, or even years ago with Perry Mason or Murder, She Wrote or Matlock or any of those old TV shows, if they taught me nothing else, it's that you can't always control the consequences. You don't know who's watching. You don't know who overheard. You don't know what was seen. You cannot control your consequences. So obviously, I never really pushed Lenny in front of a moving car. Obviously, none of that happened. I made it all up to make this point, though. Living a life based on consequences assumes a lot of things that are beyond your control. And they are bound to unravel and fall apart. And then you're left having to pay the price for those poor choices you made that were not anchored in a morality, but were anchored in consequences. A little while ago, somebody asked me about some of the tragic events that have been happening in our world lately. The devastating wildfires in California. You can think even today as I'm recording this, as Hurricane Laura has hit landfall down in Louisiana, Texas, and is moving up into the Midwest. You can think about the murder of George Floyd, the unrest that's happening with racial division and, and just the uncertainty that many people exist. Or even just think about all of the conversations regarding the presidential election and the rampant and, and strong feelings that people have on either side of the aisle. This person asked me, knowing that I'm a follower of Christ, so, you know, Bruce, how could a good God let these things happen? You know, an, an easy question like that. What I think they were looking for was a simplistic solution to very complex issues. Maybe you're in a class right now and you really wish there were simple answers to some complex issues. You long for the day when you had a textbook that had all the answers in the back. You know, you could do the assignment or you could just kind of skip to the back and write the answers down. We want to reduce the complex to the simple. That part of that's human nature. But that happens in life when it comes to our principles, too. We try to be reductionists. A Marxist, for example, would come along and say, we can reduce everything about people to economic function. A Freudian would come along and say, you can reduce everything about people to sexuality and to aggression. A behaviorist might come along. We can reduce everything about people to behavior. There's no real inner personal life. Re reducing the complex to the simple. It's like the story of Procrastes. Procrastes was an ancient Greek. 
And Procrastes loved to have visitors. He loved to have people come and stay the night and occupy his guest bed. But the problem with Procrastes was he was also a perfectionist. So he wanted you to occupy that guest bed exactly, all six feet of that guest bed. So Shaquille O'Neal was a big disappointment to Procrastes because there's more of him than there was of the bed. But axes are wonderful things. And you lop a little bit of shack off at the ankles, take some off at the shoulders, and suddenly he fits perfect. Simone Biles, greatest gymnast of all time. She was a little disappointment to Procrastes. But racks are wonderful things. And you put Simone on that rack and you start stretching her and popping joints out of socket, and suddenly Simone fits that six-foot bed perfectly. And that's what reductionism does. The reductionist comes along to the complexity of moral issues and either chops off things that they don't want to deal with. We ignore those facts altogether or we stretch the facts until they fit in our particular theory, our particular way of doing things. The shift in society away from principles towards consequences, an emphasis on pleasure for the individual, pleasure for the community, there's no longer absolute standards, but relative morality, varying from time to time, place to place, person to person, an emphasis on looking for simplistic answers to complex problems. This is our world. And our anchor as Christians, our belief and our life and our response as Christians must first of all be to pray, because prayer works. And secondly, you must be a prophet. You must be someone who boldly proclaims what God is still saying in this world today, who speaks forth the truth and calls people to understand what is wrong and unjust and untrue. I think we should engage in debates and discussions about the common attitudes in our society today, about the fallacies that exist in these moral approaches, and point out that there's something better to be anchored in. I think about the racial tension going on in the world today. I believe strongly that as Christians, no matter our denominational background, we have a mission to love God and to love people and to make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. We should love and embrace all people and seek to bring wholeness to this world through healthy biblical communities filled with holy women and men. We should speak out against things. My particular denomination, the Free Methodist Church, the denomination that Central is affiliated with, the Free Methodist Church was founded against the institution of slavery. These abolitionists who spoke up and said that no one should be enslaved. No one should be treated differently because of the color of their skin. No one should be treated differently because they're poor. We oppose class distinction. We continue this legacy of opposing racism in the face of new hatred and violence in places like Charlottesville and other places that have existed around our world. I mean, racism, I would say, is the pinnacle evidence of evil amongst humanity. It is pride, it is hatred, it is fear and disunity and elitism and ignorance and disrespect of God's creation and of God himself, all wrapped up in sin's many expressions. We should be anchored people who seek to undermine racism, who seek justice to prevent it, who want to love people out of it. As a free Methodist, it was our original call. I believe it's our present call. And again, just as people made in the image of God, a God who does not show favoritism, 
but accepts women and men from all nations. That should be our call yet today, to condemn any group that is committed to white supremacy, to recognize that Jesus alone is supreme, that we can only be complete in him, and only by following him will we arrive where we need to be and where we deeply long to be. I think we should commit ourselves to the flourishing of all people, of all ethnicities, which means we should repudiate the hate and the bitterness that is fomented by people groups in the name of the United States or even in the name of Christianity. We should be calling on government leaders to name and denounce the evils of varied white supremacist groups. We should call on the church to pray for all people who are being killed or marginalized or forgotten or ignored when they're saying this is not right. We need to hear that, to right the wrongs, to make things more equitable, like we talked about last week. I think as anchored women and men, we should boldly say such things, because I believe as anchored women and men, we are called to be salt, and we are called to be light. Salt is something that preserves, keeps the goodness, prevents the badness. That's to be our role in society, to keep what is good, to prevent what is bad. But salt also adds flavor. Add a little salt to food, it brings out the best in it, brings out the flavor. We're supposed to be like that. We're supposed to bring out the best in other people to help women and men grow up into full womanhood, full manhood in Jesus Christ. But we're also supposed to be light, salt and light. And to be light in the world does two things also. First of all, it shows off the darkness. You know, I have an office in McPherson that's out by La Fiesta. My office is right in that Hess Oil building. If you come by there, you would see that all my books are right where I want them. I have a neat, tidy, ordered office. The problem is that when the light is on, if you look really closely, you might reveal some dust too. Because light reveals what sometimes can get hidden in the darkness. Light also shows us the way that we're supposed to go. Your task, my task, as anchored persons, anchored in the truth of Jesus Christ, is that we're supposed to show this frequently unbelieving and godless society not simply the way to go and not simply the way to behave, but the way to make moral and godly and biblical decisions. There is a moral mandate to holiness. How we live matters. What you believe matters. What you choose to anchor in matters because your principles matter. And a place like Central Christian College of Kansas seeks to instill in you character, Christ-oriented character that helps you be anchored in something that will last a lifetime, to live as holy people, to live as righteous people, to live as just people. This is who we're called to be and who I pray you are constantly becoming. So may you live with principles. May you be anchored in faith, hope, and love. May you know you're not alone. We're never alone. God is with us. And may God go with you throughout your studies, throughout this semester, and through all the semesters and years to come. May you be principled people who love one another. And may you give thanks to God for the time we have to learn, to grow, and to be shaped into the women and men he calls us to be. God bless you all.